Hello and welcome to Minta Dialogue, episode number 218. Today is Sunday the 18th of December 2016. So after a long absence where I've been away doing a tour for my new documentary film and book, The Last Ring Home, this interview is with a different kind of guest that's totally consistent with my latest project, mixing a personal passion, a digital platform, crowdfunding, and in-real-life experiences. I let you discover the remarkable young man, Rishi Sharma, who's on a mission to make a meaningful mark in our world. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. So welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So I have piped in from California, straight straight out of Pearl Harbor just this week, Rishi Sharma. So um, for those of you who have been following this podcast, this is a different kind of podcast because for the most part, I've been doing a podcast and talking about digital and and uh, and I very rarely uh, weave into this uh, story uh, anything that has to do with my other massive personal project, which is uh, relates to the last ring home and the story about my grandfather, who was killed as a POW in the Second World War. I uh, in, in my research and, and travels around the world talking about this uh, World War II project, I came across Rishi, and so Rishi. Sharma is a 19-year-old, I'm not ashamed to say, uh, at least I hope you're okay with that, Rishi. Um, and uh, so like my son, uh, son's age, you are on a mission. So Rishi, tell us about your mission, because it is just so scintillating. Yeah, um, so basically I've been on a mission to in-depth film interview at least one World War II combat veteran every single day till the last one passes away. And uh, I, I now run a nonprofit called Heroes of the Second World War, which is trying to get others, especially from the younger generations, to wake up from their self-absorbed worlds and realize that there are these heroes out there and that we have a very limited time frame to actually go and interact with them. All right, so a couple of questions. How many surviving veterans do you think are out there today as we sit here in the at the end of December 2016? Oh, gosh, it really depends what you mean. Uh, in the U.S., for example, yeah. there's about 620,000 World War II veterans left, but only about an eighth of all the guys who served actually saw combat in some capacity. When you take it in the world... I wouldn't be able to give you an accurate answer, but the estimates are that worldwide, it's less than uh, 2 million people that had some connection in some form to World War II that are alive now, because you have to be 90 years old to be the youngest kid at the very end of the war now, Mm -hmm. and most of the guys I talk to are 94 97, you know, 98, they're all up there. And, uh, yeah, there's not many of them. And and in the U.S., at least, around 450 of them die every single day. So and I can't even imagine what it's like worldwide. For sure. And, of course, there are even differences between the cultures and, and which part of the Second World War they fought in. When when you when you are interviewing these people, uh, do you, these veterans, do you make a difference between those who saw combat and not combat? 
And then what are the types of questions you're trying to capture in when you film them, Rishi? Yeah, so I actually only interview combat World War II veterans. So it kind of, <laughs> I don't really need to make any you know, distinction because they're all kind of the same in that sense. But all I'm trying to do is get, is to get a better understanding of why I'm here today and the kind of things that had to be done and had to be seen and endured by other people like these World War II veterans, so that I, I, that so many others could have a chance at life in a world where when we hear about World War II, it almost seems like a very, very distant sci-fi reality. The atrocities and the horrors and the sheer brutalness of it. And, and I'm really trying to get the first-hand accounts of these men to, you know, to open my eyes to what it really was like and eventually open the eyes of other people. So how are you getting in touch with them, Rishi? Because, you know, I've been in the same situation. You're, you're you know, a 19-year-old. You're not exactly their peer. You're a total stranger to them. Are, are you, uh, and how many interviews have you done to date? Yeah, to date, I've done about, you know, 220 or interviews with World War Two veterans, and those are the ones where I'm actually you know sitting down interviewing them. There's a handful over the phone ones, but uh, I get in touch with these guys in many different ways. I do a lot of research on World War Two, on specific battles or on specific divisions, and from there I'll contact the associations or I'll look them up in Google on the news tab. And oftentimes you'll get articles about these guys and I'll go through yellow pages and then I'll reach out. I'll contact American Legions, VFWs, and I'll reach out to them. Uh, oftentimes in cities there is one guy or a couple people who kind of have the pulse in the World War II veteran community and are able to put you in touch with a lot of other people. Uh, after news coverage happens, a lot of People reach out telling me about World War II veterans, uh, and, and I'm able to take some of those. But at this point, I have a predetermined list of about 300 guys that are extremely high caliber, meaning they were at pivotal areas such as you know on the Arizona during Pearl Harbor or at Kasserine Pass in North Africa, or these are men who saw a lot of heavy combat. And that list is what I'm working on right now. I'm going to be trying to look all those guys in their eyes before they're gone. But yeah, the best way I, I reach out to these guys is just through online research and then reaching out over by phone. Or you could also just walk into a senior home sometimes. I mean, there's always hidden gems in the senior homes. When you're doing this resheet, uh, you do these interviews, and they last four to six hours. That's right. Yeah, on average, yeah. And when and and at the end of it, tell tell us what you do with the video, because uh, you know it seems like that would be an an amazing amount of intimate. Um, obviously, sometimes a little discombobulated because it's just going to be the way the conversation goes. I assume material. What do you do with the the video footage? Yeah, so at this point, my biggest concern is actually getting these men interviewed. 
and actually, you know, because because after they're long gone is when, I, you know, I can start to formulate the best way to make it an educational resource, and that that's uh, one of my biggest gripes against organizations, you know, that are doing oral history is they're trying to get the oral history and make it a resource immediately through transcription and through archiving, which takes a long time. And while they're doing all that, these guys are dying. So my biggest thing is right now just to get them interviewed. And so at this point, I'm giving them the rights to the footage so that they'll be more open to me, more open to talking. And after it's all said and done, I'll go back and uh, I'll ask them if they'd be willing to share with other people or their next of kin. And from that point is when I guess we'll decide what to do. But for the men who don't care as of now, I plan on donating that footage to like a World War II museum. In New Orleans? No, uh, I'm actually thinking about the one in Boston. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And um, when you go into them, you, you research each one or do you sort of, you have a general idea and then you just go with that? Do you Or do you have like a, a I would say a set series of line, questions you go for and then you have very organic conversations going forward? Yeah, well, it's definitely organic, but I do do research on each veteran that I interview because the last thing I want to do is go into this not you know, not being able to hold an intelligent conversation. I do research on the units that they were a part of, like for today. For example, I'm interviewing a Marine who was in the 2nd Division, and he went from Guadalcanal to Tinian, which means, you know, Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan, Tinian. And uh, he was a PAR man, so I've done research on that kind of role, how, you know, so that when I do sit down with him today, I may want to get a better sense of what his experiences were. But after, after we go through his combat experiences, I do have a set of questions, about 150, that kind of just answering, you know, tying up the loose ends and making it into one uh, story that's digestible rather than just having loose bits and pieces here and there. And when you when you have your conversations with these guys, Rishi, how much of the conversation actually focuses on post-war, or does any of it relate to what happens after? Yeah, so I talked to these men about their early life growing up, uh, the kind of things they did for fun as a kid, uh, growing up with a depression, what they did you know, with their buddies during high school, if they went steady with anyone, then we get into how they joined the military, where they were, you know, what their thoughts were during either the Battle of Britain or at Pearl Harbor, etc., then we get them, you know, going through boot camp or basic training. Then we get them going through uh, the war, and and the vast majority of the time is spent on combat. And as we get towards the end of their combat experience, uh, I do something called reflections, which is uh, about ten questions talking to them, you know, about the reflections of the time period and of their service and. Then it gets more personal, asking them about, uh, at this point it becomes kind of like a living obituary. I ask them about, you know, what advice they want to leave for people, how they want to be remembered, what they want to say to their buddies who didn't make it, um, if they want to say anything to anyone in particular, and I kind of just give them the, the reins to kind of say whatever they want, 
because this is, in a sense, it's their last words. And uh, that's usually as far as we go post-war. My focus is really, to be frank, is just growing up uh, pre-war and then the war. Because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that takes a long time even. Uh, and I don't think these guys have the stamina to go. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. I mean, heck, four hours or even six, or, you know, even four hours, even an hour can sometimes be most draining because a lot of this can be uh, emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... In, in you've gotten so much under your belt already, Rishi. What are what are some of the the ways you've sort of felt about? Uh, do you have any stories? I'm going to get. I want to ask you some specific stories in a second. But first of all, looking at the bulk of them, do you feel differences between Marines and Air Force and Army, Navy? Do you feel differences between officers? And and uh, not officers. Uh, how do you? What kinds of thoughts are, and uh, you know, conclusions have you made at this point in in uh, you know overlooking the meta story? Yeah, you know, uh, I, the conclusions I've really come to is if you really want guys, you know, who saw it face-to-face and really thought that they weren't going to make it, you ought to tend to focus on the guys on the ground or guys who were POWs, because you get really gripping tales of, of survival. And, and that is usually what resonates the most with me. Uh, I The officers that I've met, that they still have that kind of uh, leadership quality that made them an officer or had them, you know, kept them, uh, gosh, they still feel like they're the protector of their men, even though it's, you know, 70 plus years later and they, and they act that way. Um, but what I've learned is, you know, the, the guys in the ground, I think had the most physically draining, but the guys in the air and even the guys on the ships, it was a lot of, uh, it was very, you know, draining mentally because you have bursts, then you have bursts of combat, then bursts of serenity. And in that serenity is when you're able to formulate in your mind what the next burst of combat is going to be. And that can wreak havoc to you. I mean, going on a bombing raid, and coming back home into safety, and then knowing that five minutes away, you know, flying time, you could be shot down and killed. That's, uh, you know, there's it, no wonder why Yosari and felt that way in Catch-22, you know, because it's going back and forth, back and forth. Whereas at least the guys on the ground, albeit they had it, you know, tough, they were kind of conditioned in that mindset. 24-7, and that was their entire reality. Um, I, I think those are my biggest takeaways. The guys I, I, who I've met, the vast majority of them told me that, you know, that they felt that they were going to die overseas, and that they, they don't even understand why they're here today. And uh, they, 
a lot of them say that it's because of the good Lord. That's a, that's a lot of their go-to answers. Cause there's really no other way to explain when the guy right next to you gets slaughtered in front of you and he's trying to put his entrails back inside calling for his mom and you're sitting there unscathed, you know, there's, there's really no way to put, you know, no other way to put it except, you know, but I think those are my biggest takeaways and that they're all very, very, uh, because of their wartime experiences, they've been able to, uh, get a very, great appreciation for life today and they've made most of every single opportunity that they've come across is that something that you think or how how do you relate that to today's context because i mean i'm very much in the same ballpark with you rishi on this in that i've spent 25 years doing research and and i met a lot of veterans 130 myself so i i really understand that for you as a 19 year old because i'm a 52 year old so it's like we's got some generations between us but how do you feel their values their vision of the world relates to yours as a 19 year old in california gosh you know i'm 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 probably the worst person to ask this because because my vision of the world is, is pretty much on par with all of theirs and, and, you know, my best friends are World War II veterans, and the only people I hang out with are World War II veterans, because they're the people who I resonate and I, who I respect the most. But what I can say is that these men are on their deaths, deathbeds, and when they're looking back at their life, you know, they'll tell me, the only things that matter are the people you met, how they made you feel, and the experiences that you had. And all of these guys made the most of their experiences in their life. They're well-traveled. They've done fulfilling work. They, they've had great family life. And they've always been there, you know, for other people in their lives. Whereas when it comes to my generation and even the generations a few before me, at the rate we're going, when we're on our deathbeds, we're going to have no experiences to look back on. I mean, no one's going to remember how many Facebook friends you had or what witty Twitter posts you made or how many Instagram followers you had. And especially you, I mean, no one's going to remember that because it's meaningless and it means nothing. It's just a waste of time. And all it means is that, you know, you didn't get to have those experiences. You didn't get to meet those people who would enrich your lives and you didn't get to care about anything except this, uh, this, this online personality that you were trying to sell the world uh, uh, yeah. for what reason or the best deal you made at Walmart last weekend yeah exactly the consumerist uh, world yeah exactly it's you know it's hard to compare the mindset of a generation that has spent literally every single day caring about other people you know, every single day of their lives has been about what they could be doing for others. And to compare that to a generation that can name the Kardashians but can't even name when uh, D-Day or the attack on Pearl Harbor was, or even when World War Two was, you know, it's shameful. And it makes it seem like all that sacrifice and all that death was meaningless because what's the point of those guys going through hell 
if people aren't going to be able to get a better understanding of it and prevent that kind of thing happening in the future. I mean, it's not like they didn't, they didn't go through all of this so that we could get some great war movies like Saving Private Ryan made. They went through this so that we could have a life today. And I think it's the most disgraceful thing that the younger generations are kind of spitting in their graves and saying, you know, we aren't even going to make the effort to learn about it. And by not even learning about it, it's very likely it could happen again. And every death that's happened since World War Two, it's it's making, at least me, and I think a lot of the veterans feel that their sacrifices are getting more and more meaningless. Because what's the point then of them having to go through all that? But, uh, you so they you, just care about other people so much. Yeah, you um, did presumably the regular course of history at, at high school. How would you advise if if I were the head of history curriculums of the United States? Let's say there's some position like that. You know, how would you advise me to uh, improve the way history is taught at school? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus really ought to be first and foremost on the living history books that we have access to. You know, when you're talking about a generation that grew up in the Great Depression, you know, witnessed the worst war the world's ever seen, came home uh, suffering signs of post-traumatic stress, yet was told to man up and move on, and ended up putting man on the moon and creating this era where the only records there are are broken ones. And then these are the same people who created the pillars of society that we have today in a you know, relatively peaceful world. Uh, I think the first thing they ought to be doing is pairing up with local senior homes. And they ought to be sending children to go and interact with those senior citizens, focusing obviously on the World War II veteran generation to try to gain that knowledge from them. Uh, a lot of history is numbers and dates. And you can't get any human emotion out of that. And, you know, 460,000 World War II U.S. veterans died during the Second World War. And that's just a number. I could say a million, and it wouldn't make a difference. You know, 80 million people died worldwide. I could say 200 million. That still wouldn't make a difference, even though that's astronomical, the difference. And... The best way, I guess, for me to get people to understand that kind of sacrifice is to add human emotions. So when I ask these veterans about their buddies who didn't make it, I'll ask them to tell me some things about their personalities of their buddies. Little things like uh, he likes to sleep a lot or, you know, he had short brown hair, blue eyes, and he hailed from Minnesota, you know, and he, and he, he had a funny way he talked, you know, that kind of stuff shed some light on the fact that these aren't just graves, but these are real people. And I think by getting these students to go interact with these veterans firsthand, you're able to put a face to the number or a face to the chapter. And that makes it so much more real and creates a sense of time. I mean, ever since I've done these interviews, I'm very clear on time. I know if you were born... In the 40s, you're going to be in your 70s now. If you're born in the 20s, you know, you can tell me any year in the 20s, and I'm going to be able to say when that World War II veteran was born. 
and that's just carried on and I'm able to tell the differences between the generations and everything you know um, you know I can tell that your generation is obviously your grandparents were World War II veterans your dad obviously was the baby boomer but it, it uh, I think people just aren't aware of the time people are always shocked to hear how many World War II veterans are dying I mean I still get emails from people her, who don't have any idea what they're talking about, saying that, oh, you have to interview this one World War One veteran. Yeah, I, I, I mean... <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, Rishi, when, when, when you... I assume you didn't just wake up one morning and said, this is what i got to do. But, I mean, so I can't imagine there was like one bowl of cereal that you ate that sort of said, bang But... How on earth did this project get started? Yeah, I've always been interested in World War Two. You know, just like you said, it wasn't one thing. It's just a culmination of things in my life and my intense passion for the men who literally saved the world and the guys who sacrificed so much so that, you know, I could have this life. And my biggest problem is trying to find the time to interview as many World War II veterans, rather than having the problem of trying to stay alive. Today. And I think it, I think it was just reading some of these books on World War II and reaching out to the guys through the phone book and reading them the excerpts from the book and hearing their take. I think that is, uh, I think maybe that's what sealed the deal hmm. and made me really interested. Give us, uh, Rishi, one or two stories that, you know, still make your eyes well up or your the hair on the back of your neck stand up. What What are some of the, the crazy stories you've heard? Uh, I mean, they're all, you know, because I only interview combat veterans, they're all kind of in yeah. that vein. But, I mean, you know, briefly, you know, some of the stories are, you know, there's a buddy of mine who's 99 now. And he was in the first division, the Big Red One, and they were on the invasion of Whoops. North Africa. Sorry, they were on the invasion of North Africa. And he witnessed, you know, Kasserine Pass taking place. And then his first combat experience was on the invasion of Sicily. And he was in a 14-man communications unit. So they were non-combatants, supposedly. And when they were going to hit the beach... They were supposed to be the central communication between headquarters, the troops coming in, the bombers in the air, the Navy bombarding the coast, and the troops already on Sicily. But by the time they got there, they were split up into two Higgins boats, one with nine and one with five. And uh, basically, the artillery shelling, uh, he describes it as hell on earth, and it was everywhere you looked, and it wasn't stopping, because the Germans had the high ground on some cliffs. And they had mortars and artillery pouring down on the beachhead. And out of 14 men, 13 of them got killed right in front of him. And he was the sole survivor. And uh, he lost the use of his legs in that battle. And he heard his best friend dying. His best friend was actually singing a song that they, he used to sing to his girlfriend over the phone. And... Uh, the man who I interviewed was, you know, listening to that song and using it as a as something to keep his breathing steady to, because he was also wounded heavily. 
but he right before he passed out he heard his best friend stop singing that song and at that point in the interview he looks at me and he says you know i heard my best friend die and then he wakes up in the hospital four days later and is told that uh everyone died except him and they all bled out because the artillery shot was so heavy that no medics could come and get them uh you know i've met guys who uh We're crossing some of the rivers in Germany, and everyone in that in their pontoon boat got killed through machine gun fire, uh, except them, and they would be unscathed, which is you know just amazing. I've met guys in the Pacific as a Marine having to storm some of the beaches and have their entire uh, platoons wiped out in front of them. One particular story is uh, one man uh, named Jim, uh, and he was a Marine on Peleliu, and he uh, they they were trying to capture this airfield, and it was a very the Japanese had the high ground, and it was just an open area. It was basically a killing field, is what it was. And his best friend uh, was was a guy named Dylan. And Jim and Dylan were, you know, best of buds. They grew up together and everything. And it it just so happened they were in the same uh, outfit in the Marine Division, in the 1st Marines. And basically, it was just very eerie the way he talked about it. Dylan told Jim... I don't think I'm going to make it. Give this to my girl back home. And it, it was his dog tag. I mean, he took off his dog tag even before. And, and you know, which is something you never do. And, uh, and he also had a letter he had written to his parents. Because cause they had been through a lot of scary situations before. But for some reason, Jim says that uh, Dylan just, it was too much for him. And... Jim was trying to tell him, don't worry, this is going to be fine, we're going to make it out, you're going to be okay. And then they get the order to cross the runway, or the the airfield, and before they even get up, uh, Dylan gets sniped in the head. And and he's dying in uh, Jim's arms. And, And Jim told me it was that day that I lost all my faith in God. And he doesn't know, you know, he it was uh he's still very resentful, you know, over all this kind of stuff and he still refuses uh to talk to a Japanese person or a person of Japanese ancestry because he went on to go throughout the war and he went on to lose a lot of his friends and he even engaged hand to hand combat which was you know, you can't even imagine I can't even imagine, yeah. you know, having to look the guy in his eyes and then stab them with bayonets. Uh, it's just, it's horrific. You know, there, there's this one 19 year old, you know, who's my age, you know, whose first experience, you know, in combat was fighting the Germans over a field of dead American bodies from the previous day's battle. His first day of combat is seeing 50 dead Americans, you know, just torn up. And he has to fight over them, and he's laying in between them, because that's where the field of battle is. And 
He said the stench was horrible. Looking at their faces, you tried not to, but you couldn't help it. And some of them, their eyes would still be open. And, you know, a lot of these things, you know, haunt them for life. I've met 17-year-olds who lied about their age to get in the Marines, having to, you know, shoot the Japanese point blank, or having to clear out those pillboxes with flamethrowers. You know, it's horrific, the kind of things that we made these people go through. And it's it's almost, you know, on par how horrific the fact that we aren't trying to learn from it, you know, besides few people, of course. Hmm. It makes it awfully uh, hard to be worried about spilt milk or, you know, the fact that my BMW was delivered with the wrong colored blue. Or, you know, it just puts a perspective anyway on some of the little worry beads that we have these days. So, Rishi, um, just to wind down with one last question, which is, um, of all the books that you read, because you presumably are a uh, a titan wolfing down books and films and all that, uh, what would you recommend as, like, a couple of the top ones that come to mind for for people? I, I I, I I really don't read too often on, you know, overall subject world war two books most often i'm spending my time reading memoirs of the guys i'm going to be so i'm unpublished a fair number of them have written books but in that sense i think uh my hitch in hell by lester tenney the baton death march survivor is absolutely one of the best books i've ever read and it, it made it such a personal connection and uh there's also the longest day I believe was the title by Charles Neighbor. Well, I will put in the show notes. I will check that, and if if uh, if you've got it wrong, we'll correct that in in the show notes afterwards. But you know, the funny thing is that you and I both know Lester Tenney, and that's where our paths are magically crossed. Uh, I I spoke to Lester. I know he's um, he's what did he say? He's clinically blind. And, yeah. uh, and I showed him my film, but I, you know, I said, well, how can I, I can't see it perfectly. And I said, well, can you feel it? And yeah, yes, I can feel it. Anyway, it's lovely um, to have had you on the show, Rishi. Uh, it's, um, you're on a tremendous mission. And uh, let, let people know where they can participate in helping you fund you in your mission and or get in touch with you if they have, uh, well, not that, not that you need anymore because you got, you're doing a, a marvelous job of getting your name out there. But how would you like people to stay in touch with you? Yeah, I think the best way for people to reach out or to donate would be to going to the www.heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, of the Second World War, all spelled out, .org website. So it's Heroes of the Second World War. Uh, They can see how they can get involved and how they can start making a difference in their community, you know, with initiatives such as Become Friends, the World War II veteran, and they can tell me about some of the veterans that they know, and they can just... uh, yeah, I think that's the best way for them to get involved. Fabulous. Rishi, so I, there's the GoFundMe, which I'm also going to make sure people are totally keyed up on doing that as well, because I participated uh, really happily. So, Rishi, great to have you on. I suppose it's top of the morning for you. Enjoy your day, and we'll be in touch. Yeah, no, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. 
If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.